Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a yearly music history podcast. <laughs> We're Four going through bi- the yearly. <laughs> going through the whole story of American music. Is bi yearly every two years or twice a year? I think it could be either, depending uh, on who you ask. But I don't know. I think generally it means every other. Got you. Well, we've been gone for a while. We were on vacation. We meant to record an episode before we left, and then we did not. So we just yep. didn't do it. Yep. I was selling my car. Um, we were doing laundry. Uh, our washing machine smells god-awful. Um, just Nick adds a little flavor it. to the clothes. Nick That's cleaned fine. it probably, like, what, ten times at this point? Between yeah. all the bleach rinses and, and the cleaning the bleach and then... Just normal soap. Very thankful for that because I was at work. Well, it's been so long. You probably have a lot saved up for your segment. Mika is a host now. Okay. So we went to Boston. We did. Boston was awesome. It was. Um, Very, very pretty. VV pretty. That's Lots two of V's two, if you're counting. Two V's. Which is different than a double V. <laughs> anyway, it's really nice. And there was lots of walking and my legs absolutely hate me now. Um, lovely time. Good food. It was very nice. Good bakery. We like Tate a lot. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant the modern or whatever. Modern was good. Well, modern was, was yeah. fine. It was, it was average. It was cheesecake, but without... The bottom to the cheesecake. The crust. Yes. <laughs> that is what a normal person would call it. <laughs> the yeah. cheesecake had a bottom. It wasn't infinite. It <laughs> wasn't bottom to it. <laughs> then I would really love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Tate. Only because the first time that we had it, I was starving. And I, I maybe had a meal that I liked more than that first meal there. I did. But it was probably the last the one. No, um, our fancy Italian dinner was good, but I really liked our just like random Italian lunch. Oh, really? That was my favorite. Yeah. Ooh, and sushi. Really, really cute sushi bar place. And they had, they had their transportation, and I liked that. And I got us on a commuter rail to Salem, and Salem was weird. <laughs> but was. like, what did we expect? Um, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. So if you live in Boston, let us know. We'll come stay with you forever. <laughs> We're just, we'll just move in. We'll be your new roommates. <laughs> yeah, but like, let us know. <laughs> we might, we might visit you next time we're there. That's a good way to get someone to <laughs> never tell us. Yes. They'll be like, all right, well, I'm going to stop listening to these weirdos. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. And my cousin got married and I love, I love my cousin and I love... My, what does she know? Is that what a second cousin is? If you're married to my cousin, what are you? Cousin-in-law? Family. (laughs) And I love my family. I always thought second cousin would be like his kids. Mm. But maybe, maybe that's wrong. Well, whatever it was, they're a beautiful couple. I love them. It was so nice. Love is great. To love. To love. Cheers. Where's your whiskey? It's over there. 
Um, and and my favorite thing to plug is this boy, my cat. He's so good. Even when he wakes you up in the middle of the night to yell at you. I love him. Okay, so his kid would be your first cousin once removed. Oh, what? We're talking about removals? Yes. A second cousin would be your grandparents' siblings' descendants. Okay. That's your second cousins. But, like, it's confusing. Like, on the same line as you. So you have, like, mm-hmm. your grandparent, their brother, they each mm-hmm. have a kid. Mm-hmm. Those kids each have a kid. So those two people oh, dang. are second cousins. The kid, the first kid is your first cousin once removed as well. It's it, it's complicated, apparently. Holy cow. <laughs> but that's not what this show is. This is a music history show. So are you done with your segment? Are we ready to move on? You're like, are you done talking? I'm tired of hearing you talk. No, that's not true. You heard me talk a lot in the last two weeks. It's never enough. Aw, <laughs> that's not true, but aw. Yeah, I'm done. You can talk now. Okay, Mika no longer the host now? Mika's no longer the host now. I relinquish hostmanship. All right, well, do you remember anything about what we've been talking about recently? Do you remember the era we're in or anything like that? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> no. We're in the 60s right now. Okay. We've talked about the British invasion. Well, yeah, but that was a while ago. Yeah, but that we've talked about basically two major things. And the British invasion was one. And then we talked about Motown. Okay. And Diana Ross. Okay. Oh, that's right. And today we're kind of sticking with the Motown-ish theme. Because this is basically 60s pop. We're doing a bonus episode about probably one of the most influential producers of all time. Okay. I've gone back and forth on whether or not I wanted to talk about, like, just in general pop music in the 60s. Because there was some stuff happening outside of Motown. Okay. Yeah. This branch of, like, 60s pop music was really spearheaded by people like the Beach Boys and the guy we're going to talk about today. When are we talking about the Beach Boys? I actually don't have them on the schedule to talk about at all. That's a crime. You love <laughs> them. I did. There's just no... I didn't know really where to fit them in. What's the... Beach Rock? Yeah, or Surf Rock. Surf Rock. I mean, we could. I just haven't planned on talking about that. I guess we could throw it into the 60s, but it'd be a little out of order. <laughs> I mean, I'm the one who has to write these. I don't know why you're giving me more work to do. Because you love the Beach Boys. You've already done all the research. Be the easiest one to write. That is true. You like could tell me about it right now without a script. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, but anyway, this guy, besides being like one of the most legendary and influential and notorious producers of all time. He has such a strange story that we kind of have to talk about him. Like I've debated not talking about him, but you know. So this is just like a fun, fun story time. Well. Oh no. (laughs) We'll we'll see how you feel about him at the end. Oh no, I'm not going to like it. We're talking about Phil Spector today. I'm guessing you've never heard of Phil Spector. Um, Is he the father of Regina Spector? (laughs) No. 
Okay. At least I don't think so. Can we find out if they're related? I mean, I really don't think that. I think it's spelled differently. Yeah. Hers is spelled with a K. His is a C. What's her song? Why? Who? Why Fidelity? do I know her? I think she's just one of those names people know. No, her dad's name is Ilya. She's Russian. Okay. Anyway, so you don't know anything about Phil Spector? Ah. Okay. Do you know nothing about Phil Spector? No. Despite that we have one of his vinyls that we listen to every year. What? We have his Christmas vinyl album. It's called wow. Phil Spector's Christmas Gift to You. It's arguably the best Christmas album ever made. I don't remember listening to this. Are you sure I'm around for this? <laughs> Generally, yeah. Well, have you ever heard anything about the wall of sound? No. Okay. Well, that's his production technique that he created. Cool. Well, then this will be an interesting one. Yeah, it sounds like you know about nothing it. about him. I know nothing. I want to know about the wall of sound. All right. Well, we'll get there. First, Are you going to tell me like actually how it works? A little bit, yeah. You gotta tell me like the, the the like science, like the engineering science stuff. Probably not that in depth, but Uh-oh. a little bit. Okay. I think we touch on it a little bit. I okay. wrote this a while ago. Don't remember. Okay. Harvey Philip Specter. Nope. Was born in 1940 in New York City. His parents were first generation Jewish immigrants from the Ukraine. Similarities in background and names on their naturalization papers led Phil to believe that his parents were first cousins. That means cousin. <laughs> yes. In 1949, his father committed suicide. Oh, even more sad. Yeah. The words on his gravestone say, to know him was to love him. Oh. In 1953... His mother moved the family to Los Angeles, where she got a job as a seamstress. Phil was always kind of a moody and withdrawn kid who oftentimes had a volatile relationship with his mother and his sister. Are you going to say something? You lean forward. No, I'm just going to sneeze. Oh, into the mic? I do. (laughs) You do? We're married again. I thought you said you do. <laughs> well, no, when you did your you sneeze, do? you said, I do. I said, I too. Okay. And then you said, you too. Anyway, back to Phil. He was a moody kid who was also known to be pretty conceited. He often made up stories that were so incredible they couldn't possibly be true. He was also known to stalk ex-girlfriends from time to time. You know, How old you are we talking? Uh, middle, high school. Mm. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a pastime, you know? Mm. We all not pass the time school. in different ways. No. You there's mean a time. not in high school? It's okay to do it after? No. <laughs> I mean, like, there's a difference between a sixth grader being like, oh, no, I, I didn't see you there. I was just also at the mall. And then, like, a high school kid, like, legitimately falling around. Yeah. I don't know how old he was at this point. That's like... From an early age, Phil started singing and learning to play the guitar. With some friends at high school, he started a band called the Teddy Bears. (laughs) What? I can't decide if I love it or I hate it. (laughs) 
During this time, Phil started to be tutored by a guy named Stan Ross, who owned a studio in L.A. This was like Phil's first taste of what record production actually looked like. So like tutored in the art? Sort of, based probably just like the music industry in general, songwriting, production, how to compose a song. Not tutored because he was a bad student. No, I mean he might have been, but he was focused on music. The Teddy Bears started to record and signed a deal with a local label called Era Records to release a few singles with the option to do more if they were successful. Isn't that always how it is? Yeah, but it's normally not a few <laughs> singles. Like maybe it's an album or something. Okay. In their next recording session, after signing that, they recorded a song that Phil wrote called To Know Him Is To Love Him. You didn't get the connection there. That was what was written on his dad's gravestone. Oh. The song shot to number one on the Hot 100 chart and sold over a million copies by the end of the year. It was the seventh number one on the relatively new Billboard charts. Hmm. Here is To Know Him Is To Love Him by The Teddy Bears. Pretty sure it's a performance. Phil's the one to guitar. teddy bears with to know him is to love him all right phil's first taste of stardom are you sure that all of them are in high school because one of them looks like a middle 20s man definitely not middle 20s it was either high school or like right out of high school all right good on puberty for that boy based on the success of this single they signed to a bigger label but their next single only hit number 91 The next few singles did even worse, and their album went absolutely nowhere. Yikes. So the Teddy Bears disbanded in 1959. So Phil was 19 when they disbanded. Wow. After the band broke up, Phil met some independent producers who got him in touch with a guy named Jerry Lieber and another guy named Mike Stoller, who were big-time writers in New York. They wrote the song Hound Dog, among other hit songs. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they're big deals. They're big time. Phil moved back to New York to start working with and learning from this writing partnership. With them, he co-wrote another top 10 hit and worked as a session guitarist for some of their recordings. Some of the other session musicians he worked with praised his musical ability, saying that he could he could be a professional jazz guitarist if he wanted to be. He was just kind of like a little... V- musician virtuoso kid like he could do Mm. anything he wanted he also started to produce a few acts and gained a bit of a recognition when he kept churning out songs that charted by 1961 when phil was only 21 years old he was a millionaire who had churned out a string of 20 consecutive hits holy cow yeah he was wild 
He moved back to Hollywood and started a, started a record label with another producer friend of his, who was the guy who originally introduced him to those hotshot New York writers. And they signed a band called The Crystals, who immediately had two top 20 hits. Here is their first single called There's No Other. And he's producing Yes. This one hit number 20. He also might have written but I don't know. That's the label, Phil's. Because I think it's two Phil's like or it. something. start hearing the beginning of the wall of sound technique in this it's that just kind of like it hits you with a wall of sound like there's just a lot going on at once i love that yep well that's uh the crystals through his label and other freelance producing he did phil started to achieve his vision of what pop music could be and started to lay the foundation of his Trademark and revolutionary production technique called the wall of sound. Because before this, I think it's important to know, like, pop music, no one thought it was anything at all. Like, it was just kind of like jingles, essentially. Like, it was kind of that early Motown sound where you just kind of, everything sounds the same, it's cheap, it's easy, it's, you know, nothing difficult, nothing super, like, musically intense. In 1962, Phil bought out his partner's share to the label, and he now owned Phil's, Phyllis, I don't know how to say it, all by himself. Probably Phil's. Phil's. While working with Liberty Records, he heard a song, like, probably just as a little freelance producer, he heard a song that was due to be released soon. Phil loved the song and raced back to his studio. He got Darlene Love to sing it, attributed it to the Crystals, who Darlene Love was not a member of, and released it before Liberty Records could. It easily hit number one. Here's the song called He's a Rebel. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So was the song Darlene Loves in the first place? I don't think so. I think it was some other singers. So he stole a song? Essentially, yeah. But it wasn't recorded yet, so... I thought he heard the recording and it just hadn't been out. Maybe, but I think he also probably did the recording. So he might have heard like a pre-thing of it, like a demo or whatever. That's real awful. But I mean, as long as you pay the songwriters, you can record whatever. That's awful. (laughs) Yeah. That's real, real And Darlene Love also made an appearance on New Girl. In case you don't remember that. if you didn't know this one. Or maybe that's just because my mom left it, so I'm so familiar with it.
such a distinctive voice, I can't believe people didn't realize this wasn't the crystal. Did they just think that she was fine? Did she have an independent career at this point? I don't know, probably not. She was probably in the back. But like, I feel like you would hear this and be like, I've never heard this from a crystal song before. All right, since he's a rebel, what do you feel about that one? It's a good song. Yikes. Regardless of how he got it out, it was a good song. Yikes. I don't like. After this, he started a band that featured Darlene Love that earned a few hits. He recorded some solo work from Darlene and recorded the smash hit Be My Baby by the Ronettes. I like that one. Cool. In 1963, he used his label's entire roster of talented artists to release a Christmas album, which is now considered one of the best Christmas albums of all time. That's the one we have. Oh. Yeah. What's on it? I don't know. What? (laughs) I mean, it's probably mostly just, like, covers. Who's on it? Um, Darlene. The Ronettes, The Crystals. Okay. There's like White Christmas, The Bells of St. Mary by Bob B. Sox in the Blue Something. Who sings White Christmas? Darlene Love. Okay. Winter Wonderland by Darlene Love. Bye? Bye. (gasps) I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus by The Ronettes. Okay. Yes, I remember listening to this now. Christmas Baby Please Come Home by Darlene. Bye? Well, I don't know originally... But that's it's her singing it. That's what I meant. Frosty the Snowman by the Ronettes. Yeah, just a good little pop Christmas album. Through his work with the Ronettes and the Crystals, Phil blended cheesy, sentimental pop melodies with riveting and loud orchestral arrangements. Phil said that his intention was, quote, I was looking for a sound, a sound so strong that if the material was not the greatest, the sound would carry the record. It was a case of augmenting, augmenting. It all fit together like a jigsaw. End quote. He sounds like a know-it-all asshole. Yeah, probably. He would have an entire ensemble. This is the technical part, if you want to pay attention. You're distracted, so I can wait. Uh, Jimmy Boyd wrote and re- first recorded... I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Okay. Cool. He died when he was 70 in 2009. Wow. All right. Good for him. He he re- he recorded it when he was 13. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's like the hippopotamus In 1952. Song. Okay. About a little over 10 years old at this point. Okay. I'm ready. Technical stuff. He would have an entire ensemble of musicians and have several of them each play the same part. So he might have an electric guitar and an acoustic guitar playing the exact same thing at the same time. He'd then dub them together to create a richer, deeper sound. He also added reverb from an echo chamber and included strings and other orchestra instruments that weren't previously used in pop songs. So I love this effect. This is yeah. one of my favorite things in music. Yeah, well, that's Phil Spector. All right, thanks, think for Phil it. Spector. This technique, though it doesn't sound like much now, was revolutionary and changed pop music 
entirely. It does sound like much now. Like that's literally one of the reasons that I adore Mr. Wives is because you listen to them and it's the same when it's live too. It's like all of the different music happening, all like all the different sounds, yeah. all the different instruments, like the straight, like not they do strings sometimes when they're like recording, but like the horns, the like vocals, mm-hmm. the everything is just like music and it all fits together and it makes my brain very happy. I guess by that I mean like it doesn't sound like much because it's so common now. I guess. Like but you still know when it yeah. happens and when it happens. Well. And he was working at a much lower technical capability. Like studios today are light years ahead of anything he had. Like right. he could record onto like 12 tracks maybe and like blend all that. Like it was like he might have three different instruments on the same track playing at the same like it, it was he had a lot a lot more challenges to yeah. create stuff like this. So I guess people have like taken what he did and just now they can make it so much better. This yeah, okay. So it was revolutionary change pop music. Brian Wilson, who was like the leader of the Beach Boys. I do know that. And was heavily inspired by Phil. Like I thought you were going to say inspired. heavily on drugs. Well, yes. But also heavily inspired by Phil Spector, said, quote, in the 40s and 50s, arrangements were considered, okay, here, listen to that French horn, or listen to the string section now. It was all one definite sound. There wasn't combinations of sound. So you can kind of think of like an orchestra where there'd be like kind of like background stuff and then a soloist forward or whatever. Like there was one instrument or section you were supposed to be focusing on. But the way Phil did it, one thing I read called it a tsunami of aural effect. And I think that's pretty fitting for the wall of sound technique. I didn't, I wouldn't, that's very interesting that the Beach Boys were so hev- heavily inspired by that because I, when listening to the Beach Boys, would not think that. Their music really? seems extremely simplistic to me. Well, that you might be thinking of early stuff. That's fair. Like Pet Sounds was when Brian started to get really into it. Because that was about the time where Brian like stopped touring and he basically did all of the Beach Boys stuff himself. Mm. Like he would arrange it, he would have it all ready, and then the other guys would come in and just like sing their parts and then it would be done. Mm. But if we do an episode on them, then you'll hear more <laughs> about that. I think you should. Yeah. In 1964... Phil heard a band called the Righteous Brothers when they performed with the Ronettes. He fell in love and immediately bought out their contract. The next year, they released You've Lost That Loving Feeling, which became his label's second number one. Here is You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Have you heard this one? I don't know. I feel it like you probably have. But, familiar? You know, I've said that before, and I've been very wrong, so maybe you haven't. Listen, I don't know many things. Like grief in your fingertips You're trying hard not to show it This is a different sound for sure Yeah But baby Baby I know it You lost I love It's a little like crooner instead of doo-woppy it's crooner, but edgier. Uh, crooner rock. It's like dark. It's not darker. It's like deeper. Their sound is deeper. We also might be suffering a little bit 
because I know you like live performances, so this isn't the recording. The recording might have more of that wall of sound in it. And I know you like performances, so I chose this one instead. This is fun. He has such a long face. <laughs> He's the guy from that sitcom and is my girl. Oh, Ted Danson? Yeah, he's, he reminds me of Ted Danson, but he like elongated his face. <laughs> because of like the jawline. Alright, well that's You've Lost Bones. That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. His Righteous. Yeah. The duo released a string of other hits for Phil, but he got tired of producing them, so he sold their contract and rights to a different label. <laughs> <laughs> Phil's, he's a moody kid. He does what he wants. That label immediately released a single, basically copying the sound that Phil developed with them that hit number one in the charts. Which is Good like, for them. Yeah, serves them right. I don't care. In April of 1966, Phil signed what would be the last act on his Phil's label, the husband and wife team of Ike and Tina Turner. What? Yay. <laughs> he recorded their song, River Deep Mountain High, which actually was just Tina Turner without Ike. <laughs> he considered it to be his greatest work of all time. Although it did really well in the UK, hitting number three, it only reached number 88 in the American charts. Here is River Deep Mountain High. When I was a little girl, I had a rag of only dogs I've ever owned. Now I love you just the way I love that rag dog. But only now my love has grown. And it gets wasn't there for that all right well that was river deep mountain high by mostly tina turner the failure of that song broke phil in many ways he was always a bit of a recluse but he sunk into a period of isolation losing all interest in his label and music entirely oof there were some reports and rumors of psychotic behavior during this time period he did almost nothing for the rest of the 60s, only appearing a few times in public. But he did marry the lead singer of the Ronettes during this period. That sounds like a good time to start a marriage. <laughs> he said he was retired, and he lived in his mansion in L.A. In 1969, he made a tenuous return to the music industry when his single Black Pearl reached number 13 in the charts. 
He signed with A&M Records. So I think the Phil's label was like done at this point. I don't mm-hmm. know what happened to it. Kind of probably got absorbed by something. But now he's working at A&M. In late 69, in the early 70s, the Beatles hired him to finish Let It Be, which was mm. their final album. The album was kind of a jumbled mess of songs that they didn't know what to do with. So their new manager brought in Phil to clean it up. I don't know if you remember, but this was the one they were they recorded a batch of songs, mm-hmm. didn't like it, shelved it, then they later recorded Abbey Road. Yeah. So then they released Abbey Road first and then they had all these songs and they're like, let's try and do something with it. So then yeah. that became Let It Be, which was like their last album released, but technically Abbey Road was their last recorded. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I did actually remember that. Oh, cool. Phil did what he could with it. It was a mess, but Paul McCartney reportedly hated what Phil did. And it was one of the reasons why Paul quit the Beatles. Do we know why he hated it? I, c- I think because he was supposed to have, like, one of the songs Phil Spector worked on was supposed to be this kind of, like, tender Paul McCartney ballad. And Phil added, like, strings and other elements to it. And Paul was like, this wasn't what I wanted. But I think it was mostly because they brought Phil in without Paul knowing or agreeing to it. And Paul wanted control of everything. So he's just going to be mad no matter what. Probably, yeah. Phil also worked on John Lennon and George Harrison's first solo albums. The solo albums were They liked it. <laughs> yeah. The solo albums were a huge commercial success, but that owed more to it being John Lennon and George Harrison than it being Phil Spector produced. In fact, it was kind of hard to tell that he had a hand in it at all. Those albums didn't carry much of his trademark production techniques. Here's one of the songs on Let It Be that Paul McCartney did not like. So excited. It's called I Me Mine. Like, this is probably as good as it could get, right? Probably, yeah. Like, it's a cool concept, but it doesn't seem like it's very developed. Like, lyrically. Alright, that's I Mean Nine. I like it. I think it's great. For most of the next few decades, he was absent from the public eye. He was always withdrawn and secluded person. He was also very temperamental and insecure. Insecure. He battled feelings of terrible inadequacy most of his life and was always obsessed with his looks. When his songs and style of music started to become less popular, he probably thought it was safer on his ego to back away than try and keep up. But that's just kind of me speculating. I don't know that. But it makes sense because, like, whenever his song that he thought was the greatest he's ever done mm-hmm. only hit it number 88, he's probably like, well, well I I've, guess I've lost now. it. Like, I don't have it anymore. He did a few different albums with Leonard Cohen and the Ramones, 
who apparently hated working with him. Why? Because he's an asshole? Yeah. Great. But mostly he lived isolated for years after that. Do you know who Leonard Cohen is? No. He's the guy who wrote the Hallelujah song. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And what about him? He just, he did an album with Phil Spector. Oh, okay. In like early 70s, maybe? In 1974, he was thrown through the windshield of his car in a near-fatal car accident. Oh, damn. Which probably added to his seclusion. Yeah. He was almost declared dead on the scene, but a police officer detected a super faint pulse. Damn. He had to undergo serious surgery on his head, which left him with 300 stitches to his face and 400 to the back of his head. Holy goodness. Yes. Brutal accident. That is why you wear your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And non-binary peoples. So for a while, he basically just didn't really do anything. In 1989, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His introduction speech was a little strange. I don't know why. I tried to look it up. It does not exist on YouTube as far as I can find. The speech? Yes. But I think he was just probably very drugged out and just out of his mind a little bit. Is that just a theme? Yeah. Or is that pain meds? Or did pain meds become a thing? Probably both. Yeah. In 1991, he was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame again, this time to induct Ike and Tina Turner. That's nice. Yeah. And that one, I watched that speech, and that one was fine. Like, it was, he's a weird dude, but, you know, okay. it was all right. It was, like, half sober. Yeah. But mostly, he just, like, completely stayed out of the public eye, stayed out of attention. Until 2003. What happened in 2003? Lena Clarkson was an actress who had a few roles in unsuccessful movies. Like, B-movies, basically. On February 2nd, she was working as a hostess at the House of Blues when Phil Spector came in. He was on the tail end of a bad date and started to chat with Lena, eventually convincing her to come back to his place. When they got there, she reportedly told the driver, this won't be long, only one drink. A little later, the same driver heard a gunshot, and Phil came out of the house holding a gun with Lena's blood on his hands. He looked dazed and said, I think I killed someone. The police found Lena's body near the front of the house with her handbag over her shoulder, suggesting that she was about to leave. Phil told the police that it was an accidental suicide, that she, quote, kissed the gun. What? I don't know. What? During the trial, the prosecution alleged that Phil had previously pulled a gun on four different women. Oh my God! Always when they threatened to leave him. Oh my God. Phil was able to cause courtroom chaos and delay the trial for years, which worked oh for him God. since oh he God. somehow got, got out on bail. Stop. And was able to travel freely. Oh my God. In 2006, despite all this happening, he was able to get married to a 26-year-old model. Stop. And he produced an album for her. S who? What? I, d I don't know. and I didn't bother looking <laughs> anymore into that. Oh, my God. Finally, in April of 2009, six years after the death, he was found guilty and, sen and sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. What? <laughs> I said he was notorious. <laughs> like he's, yeah. 
gosh, sometimes it's so terrifying to be a woman. Since that trial, a lot of stuff has come out about Phil. None of it good. Does it get worse than pulling a gun on four women who are like, good night? And he's like, not tonight, you don't. I mean, maybe. Oh, no. In her 1990 memoir, his ex-wife, the singer from the Ronettes, said that Phil basically imprisoned her in the house and and subjected her to years of psychological torment. He sabotaged her career by forbidding her to perform. What the hell, dude? She eventually escaped with the help of her mother, and they divorced in 1974. Way to go, honey. In the divorce, she gave up all rights to her recordings and custody of their children. Oh, no, those poor children. She said she was forced to do that because Phil threatened to hire a hitman to kill her if she didn't. Holy. His kids also have very traumatic stories to tell about him. Yeah. But I don't want to go into that because it's not... That's fair. It's not fitting stories That's for fair. this podcast, but you can look that up if you want. That's all right. They're I'm just very gonna, gruesome. I'm just gonna uh, just let them be. I don't need to know. In 2005, Phil testified that he had been treated for bipolar disorder for the past eight years. He said, "Quote: No sleep, depression, mood changes, mood swings, hard to live with, hard to concentrate, just hard, a hard time getting through life." I've been called a genius, and I think a genius is not there all the time and has borderline insanity. End quote. I honestly see the er- the early stuff. Like, I'm not surprised that you say bipolar, but also lots of bipolar people don't. Yeah. Murder. There's also heavy speculation that he suffered brain damage in the car accident. This is all on. Listen, listen. This sounds to me like another violent man using all sorts of excuses to be like, I'm a shitty person, but it's okay because X, Y, Z, and it just makes everything else just look bad. Like, you don't think uh, he probably uh, is mentally ill. (laughs) No, but that's, I mean, like, that's no, that's no excuse for what he did, but like, he probably does have mental I'm sure. I'm sure that he has a a slew of things. That sucks. But like, ooh, man. And also potential brain damage. That was never like proven. But because people think a lot of the worst of it started after that car accident where he had like 400 (sighs) stitches to the back of his head. So there's probably brain damage. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. I think it's uh, I think it's unfair to say. Like I'm bipolar, like in a, in a investigations, so, like that's unfair to all bipolar people. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's not it. Yeah. I don't care. In prison, his health deteriorated quite a bit. Yeah, I wonder why. Eventually causing him to lose his voice completely. In January of 2021, at 81 years old, Phil Spector died as a result of COVID complications. Which is very recent. Despite him seemingly being a total piece of crap, Phil Spector completely changed pop music forever in the 60s. And he can boast that he influenced some of the best to ever do it. Mm-hmm. He made pop music be considered like actual art. Because before him, it wasn't considered anything. But. Yeah. Through some of his arrangements and some of his production techniques, he kind of like 
mm-hmm. you let people see, oh, you can write pop music that's actually like good music. Mm-hmm. So I'm I love grateful that. to him for that, but also he's a terrible person. I love that. I love that advancement. I think it would have happened anyway, but I'm grateful that he I love, got us there. I love the wall of sound. Now that you like say that and credit that, like I specifically note that in so mm-hmm. many of my favorite songs. That's like my favorite thing to hear. Well, that was the story of Phil Spector. Good God. (laughs) The most notorious, potentially the most influential producer of all time. He's up there with, I would say, George Martin is close. He was the Beatles' main producer. But I think that had more to do with the Beatles than George. Right. So I don't know. I feel like he's probably the most influential producer of all time. I'm ready to be proven wrong. If anyone wants to hit us up on Twitter, twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore. There's a lot of really good producers out there. Not now. (laughs) Not now? (laughs) You're a little independent producer. You're probably not more influential than Phil Spector. Don't send me your music. Do! (laughs) I want to hear it. Yeah, you can. I want to hear your new technique. You're not more influential than Phil Spector right now. Maybe one day, hopefully. But you are I'm, crushing dreams right now. I'm more looking for like historically important. I can't think of anyone. Brian Wilson, but he was more an arranger than producer. All right. Well, that was Phil Spector. Next week, I forgot what we're talking about. Goodness. And I already closed the laptop. Goodness. Let's see if I can remember. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to remember. They might. Funk. We're talking about funk. How fun. Yeah. It'll be fun. Talk about funk, and then we talk about James Brown. Then we talk about Aretha Franklin. Mm. Then we get into psychedelic stuff. Oh. Psychedelic rock. And okay. the Grateful Dead. Okay. Yeah, we're running the gamut. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Sorry it's been so long since we put out an episode. I'm back with a explosive episode i will say we will try to be better but i cannot make that promise things happen things are the way they are i don't even know <laughs> all right goodbye goodbye people have a good week don't go into strange men's homes and always 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 tell people where you are also don't shoot people yeah walks down the street